CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 33 Stakeholders or Spectators Youth Inclusion and the Post-Covid Recovery COVID-19 has been part of our everyday life for more than two years now. It has affected all of us in one way or another, regardless of our age. When it hit in 2020, protection of the older generations was our utmost priority. However, one age group suffered in a different way, young people. Although they were less threatened by COVID-19 in terms of physical well-being, they were more likely than older groups to experience financial and housing insecurity unemployment, and mental health problems. Now, as states are trying to recover from the pandemic, we want to take a closer look at the role of young people in this process. Are they spectators or stakeholders? Are their needs and voices included in national strategies and policy-making processes? My name is Marvina Talik. I am a research associate at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe based in Vienna. My guest in today's episode of CEE, Central Europe Explained, will be Milena Stosic from the OSC Mission to Serbia. We will discuss how the pandemic impacted young people's perceptions, what steps should be taken to create youth-inclusive environments, and how the regional youth cooperation functions. Milena describes herself as a psychologist in the human rights world. She was the first ever appointed special representative on youth and security during the Serbian OSCE chairmanship in office in 2015. Currently, with the OSCE mission to Serbia, she supports youth mainstreaming efforts as a youth focal point to the mission and the work with and for youth stakeholders in domains of participation, policymaking, human rights and regional cooperation as a national program officer on youth. Thank you for joining us today from Belgrade. Thank you for having me. Let us start with perceptions of the impact of COVID-19 on youth. It has been widely reported that young people were disproportionately affected by the pandemic and also your organization, the OSCE mission to Serbia, supported the National Youth Council of Serbia at publishing research related to this matter. Could you tell us uh, more about the major findings of this report and how applicable they are two years later? Yes, thank you first of all for the opportunity to share about our work and for hosting this type of conversation about young women and men's role, because you know too often young people are not seen as a priority or their participation is relatively symbolic. So I'm pleased to share some of my thoughts and insights of our work in this regard. So before you're answering your question concretely, let me please just contextualize on where we are coming from. Indeed, it's a very good question uh, that, you, that you have in this introduction. Are they spectators or stakeholders? And our approach is certainly to work with and for young people, or to be more precise, more often these are organized young people. So the OSC participating states have repeatedly recognized the contribution of youth to enhancing peace and security in a way of adopting over years more than 50 ministerial decisions and declarations referring to youth and education 
but there are also three ministerial council declarations which are addressing youth agency to contribute to implementation of commitments of the OEC. Thus, what this means, they're not being seen purely as beneficiaries of adult plans, but rather relevant stakeholders. So with the National Youth Council of Serbia, this is an organization or a network which is among long-term partners to the mission to Serbia. And in 2020, we supported them in producing countrywide research of impact of COVID-19 on lives of young women and men. Now, I would like to remind that initially, young women and men at the time when the whole COVID-19 crisis started were initially seen as part of society's lower risk of pandemic. Although today, there is no doubt that its influence of crisis is systemic and socioeconomic and that it disproportionately affects young people around the world. So the consequences of not addressing this type of outcomes are indicated by number of global and European research warning of this long-term effect, as it's often said, quarantine generation. So what this research revealed is not that different from insights of other countries or regions. This latest crisis basically brought to the daylight existing barriers um, in my view, which young people face on the way to full realization of their rights, first of all, rights to autonomy, but also it deepened existing inequalities, especially in terms of, of course, the rights to work, the rights to education, which is then consequently reflected also on their mental health. On another side, when we speak about youth organizations and young people, they really resisted serious challenges in implementing their programs and working in the community. And I think this is also important to, to underscore. And despite this, they were at the forefront of pandemic response lines by supporting and initiating numerous voluntary actions of, of solidarity. So on one hand, they really faced serious challenges also due to their developmental age, let's say. On another side, they demonstrated the agency of being active citizens and contributing, you know, to, to countering the, the crisis and effects that it produced also for, for others. So we see also intergenerational solidarity in their behavior. So do you think that the pandemic has brought any changes to the way that national policymaker is approaching young people? Yeah, for example, we know that only during peak of COVID crisis, but in this region, we know this also from 2015 flooding, young people showcased solidarity and volunteered across the board, right? And as research has been shown, so not only in Serbia, but much wider, that volunteering programs increase youth resilience, increase their civic involvement, contribute to strengthening community resilience. In Serbia, for instance, I think that good step, in my view, is ongoing revision of the law on volunteering to better serve both volunteers and organizers of volunteering, and also to exclude this unpaid work, which is often disguised as volunteering. So I think um, this is a link that, uh, that maybe, let's say it's beneficial in regard to, to what we have seen during pandemics on how much volunteering matters and how much young people contribute to volunteering programs. Also important are insights stemming from COVID crisis in relation to mental health, of course, which was long overdue globally. And for instance, in Serbia, it is anticipated that revision of the national youth strategy will prominently reflect area of mental health as one of the priorities for the upcoming period, which was not the case ever before. I believe this is something that is also recognized on, on European or even more global 
level as a topic that was usually sidelined, but now unfortunately it surfaced as, as a priority and something that we need to take care about. And we also saw on a broader level the challenge of sustainability of youth organizations and then stakeholders like, for instance, Council of Europe's European Youth Foundation, they, they had special calls for COVID-19 activities or projects. And I think that this sort of example shows how actually bureaucracies can react promptly, but it also teaches us that more flexibility is needed in terms of dispersing these funds, that maybe emergency funds are welcome also, or that grant schemes can be rethought to be more user-friendly. Also speaking of, um, of COVID-19 and what has changed, of course, it's, it's early to say, but um, we definitely see that there is recognition that certain new insights must inform upcoming policies. So we also see initiatives such as the European Union designated this year as Year of Youth, and they also refer to it as that they recognize the, the toll that COVID-19 policies had on education of young people, access to jobs and mental health, and that with this kind of initiative, um, there is an aim to create new opportunities for young people in Europe. We also see that UN, of course, also does a great deal to promote youth participation. And for instance, this year, UN Secretary General's Youth Envoy Office, they publish a guide for public officials on implementing youth peace and security agenda on a country level, which I think it matters because um, this agenda, which is legally binding, really is a historical opportunity to challenge business as usual and to further youth involvement, especially if we understand security as human security, which involves also environmental issues and economical issues and beyond political or, uh, or military. Um, so, so there are definitely steps in, in good direction. Uh, there are two reports on uh, young people in the EU which were published last fall, and they have somehow contradictory findings. And I wonder which of those findings would be most applicable in the Serbian context. So the first report is by the European Council of Foreign Relations, and it identified a growing generational divide, both within the European societies and across Europe, uh, and it finds it very threatening. This report also states that young people, and here I quote, under 30 are more likely to blame governments and other institutions rather than individuals for the spread of the virus, end of quote. And on the other hand, there's this other report by Eurofund, which implies that young people's trust in institutions remained higher than other groups, despite the fact that the young people were hit harder by the COVID-19 crisis in terms of mental health and employment. To me, they are very contradictory. And I was wondering, which of them do you find more relevant in Serbia from your observations and why? And do you know maybe why there would be such different results? Well, of course, it is um, impossible to generalize and to still draw very accurate conclusions and, you know, political and social realities differ much across the continent. Also, there is a difference in methodology being applied in researches, quantitative especially. But what I think it is important here to always remember is that young people are very, very heterogeneous group. And saying young people under 30 must assume intersectional approach. We cannot um, imagine a single representative of this young people under 30, right? So for instance, there are also other researches because um, 
luckily many organizations recognized that this should be actually looked at. So for instance, OECD research suggests that in overall effects of the crisis had often been more significant for certain groups within group of youth, such as young women, young people from social economically disadvantaged backgrounds, young people not in employment, education or training, migrants, people with disabilities, and other young people in vulnerable circumstances. So this is also something that I find again in another one, which is done by um, International Labour Organization in 2020, and across really big number of countries, they also suggest that there is a difference and how particularly hard effects of COVID has been on young women, younger cohort of youth within this bigger group, and of course, youth in lower income countries. So young people are concerned about the future and their place within it. So of course, it's going to be expected there is lack of trust in adults making decisions about their lives, right? Nevertheless, as I say, some things just became more visible due to COVID crisis, but they really existed before. So already prior to crisis, again, we have many sources saying that young people's satisfaction with democracy, with trust in government, with access to institutions was on decline. Then also, it's interesting when we compare, you know, researches done by, for instance, organizations, international organizations, but researches done by private entities or marketing agencies such as uh, Ipsos, for instance, that was done in US. They also say that even before pandemic, um, Generation Z believed there was a lot to fix. And these are very concrete things like climate change, racial injustice, inequality, and so much more. And this perhaps means that these generations are ready to be engaged, but rather on a subject matter, on something which is very concrete topic, then through formal or traditional participation channels as we know them. And as for Serbia, I think um, the research done by the National Youth Council that the mission supported shows that the largest number of young people were fully complied with the measures of the rules of physical distancing when they first appeared. So especially during this state of emergency period and lockdowns, while respecting these measures dropped in, in post emergency period, if we may call it that way. It was not part of the research to, to look at causal relationships, what that happened. And I think multiple factors could be at stake. But um, what I also wanted to mention are gender differences that, that we observe in this research. And this is for instance that in the period looked at in the research, at least at first, many more young women worked from their homes during the time of state of emergency in comparison to young men. Also, they were more positive about the reaction of the state in relation to young men, both during and after the state of emergency, and young women more respected measures of physical distancing, as well as measures on restrictions of movement and assembly. What is also interesting to notice is that young women evaluate online teaching more positively. Nevertheless, they, their perceived emotions, for instance, in terms of feeling of, of uh, being jeopardized, threatened by, by the crisis, etc., young women report more often this feeling in relation to young men. And one other interesting fact is that young men perceived more negatively the effects of emergency state in terms of their work in comparison to young women. And it makes me wonder, perhaps this has to do also with the old gender discrepancy on you know, gendered public and, and private spheres. So to get back also to your question about this research and how this, this affected young people, I think it's important to also differentiate between young people, young women and men and youth organizations, 
because youth organizations faced additional barriers, which were severe, there were even risks to their existence. So I think we, we all found ourselves in, um, in a situation of uncertainty and not really being sure on how to, to move on. And a lot of time was needed for, for different entities to, to find their way. And in the meanwhile, youth organizations were pretty much restricted to do what, why they exist for and to support other young people to provide services, etc. And unfortunately, some of them closed down or were at um, really high risk of, of closing down. You have made a, a couple of very good points, and one of them as being that we often perceive youth as a homogeneous group, but this couldn't be more false because young people are very heterogeneous like any other group. Thank you very much also for paying attention to intersectionality and gender differences in facing pandemic. And you have also mentioned that young people are willing to engage. And my next question uh, about the post-COVID recovery is connected to this point, because the pandemic is unfortunately still not over, but uh, the recovery process has uh, started. And now what is the role that young people are playing or can play in this uh, post-COVID recovery. Uh, referring to the title of today's episode, are they stakeholders or are they spectators in this process? And is their involvement and opinion and views welcome or it does not go beyond tokenism? That's a big question. And uh, tokenism is indeed a big problem, which is tricky because oftentimes neither entities that try to involve youth are aware of it, but also often young people themselves do not recognize it. And I believe that barriers are different in different contexts. We have recently organized a series of online discussions on fostering inclusion of youth across policies, processes, and programs. And we gathered representatives of multilateral organizations, practitioners, youth organizations, governmental reps, etc. And tokenism is a topic that emerges all of the time. Um, for instance, one 29 years old young activist, she was sharing that due to cultural frame of Central Asian country she's coming from, she used to always stay silent and speak less in the room with policymakers because this is a sign of respect. On the other hand, in US, she would make for a perfect box to be ticked as a young woman from a developing country. So this is just a single example of how young person can feel like a token and not equal partnering conversation. And we mustn't forget that young people are, first of all, right holders, but also that listening to youth voices leads to better policy outcomes. Still, if we take a look at the, for instance, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights report of, uh, from two years ago, it is observed that youth participation is frequently restricted to consultation exercises rather than meaningful participation in decision and processes that have profound implications for their future. My feeling is basically that the call for more participation of youth is not new. It's not a revolutionary idea that this is a precondition for sustainable democracies and peace and that it became widely recognized. So with emergence of also UN Security Council, Youth Peace and Security Agenda, 
I really hope that such recognition would spill over also to practical and multi-sectorial operationalization. Nevertheless, currently, let's say I see at least three obstacles to it. And first of all, this is lack of know-how. Basic inclusion is not only heads counting, and we sometimes tend to do this. Second, there is limited capacity building opportunities for both youth, because sometimes they really need it in order to be able to in an informed way contributes to often complex policy making, but on another side, capacity building opportunities for different stakeholders to be able to involve them beyond tokenism. And the third one might be, of course, ongoing resistance and prejudices, which are discrediting youth as equal partners. Let's hear them, let's have them over the table, but really we don't see them as equals. Um, there is this feeling that many young people report. So discussions that we fostered and also previous analysis conducted is showing that post-COVID recovery planning across countries may be an opportune moment to reconsider public financial management and policymaking through youth-focused lens. Certainly this can mean short-term and instant measures addressing, for instance, youth organizations functioning in educational aspects or one-off financial assistance, et cetera. Nevertheless, there are also tools that enable systemic change in regard to, for example, participatory youth budgeting alongside gender responsive budgeting. And recently I learned that European Youth Forum, for instance, is calling for a European level youth test, they call it, which should be an impact assessment tool for EU policies and legislation. And that kind of tool could examine how young people are affected by policies which are outside of the scope of the traditional youth policies. Because young people might also be consulted and they might have interest and opinions on topics such as retirement policies or housing or countering terrorism. And often they're not seen a stakeholder or a group within demographics that should have opinions on this or should be consulted on that. So what also our roundtable series brought as food for thought is um, I think important to emphasize recognition of role of national youth councils as the main youth stakeholders in processes that can mainstream youth considerations. And here I'm thinking about existing big processes such as voluntary national reviews, which are being done in relation to sustainable development goals or universal periodic reviews in relation to human rights monitoring, or in the future, hopefully, we see also youth peace and security country level operationalization. And we have already examples on how not only national youth councils, their membership, of course, as well, participate um, in law and policy making in relation to legislation on youth, on, on volunteering, um, sometimes even um, labor, uh, labor rights. However, their ability to partake and to engage other civil society organizations is quite often dependent on the availability and continuity of capacity building of financial resources. And last but definitely not least on awareness or even willingness of state actors or multilateral organizations to involve them, to recognize, to even have knowledge that they exist as an actor in society. So I firmly believe that youth mainstreaming is a long-term solution, even when we speak about um, post-COVID recovery, because if incorporated meaningfully across public policy, it can strongly support not only representation, but really youth-oriented solutions and more peaceful democratic societies in the long run. So I would also like to mention that um, alongside our partners, 
we intend to publish in upcoming period a praxis paper on fostering youth inclusion. And there we will also be mapping youth mainstreaming practices. And although in early stage, we have indications that this may serve advocacy purposes and overall awareness raising with some very concrete suggestions on how we all can do better in our work with and for youth. So stay tuned and join our LinkedIn group uh, on fostering more inclusive societies uh, if you want to partake in this conversation. I can definitely recommend it and you will find the link in the description of this podcast. Mlena, what you're saying, we also know that youth organizations can be a very important actor in uh, youth mainstreaming. Tell us more about how the pandemic have affected them in your region. Um, I mentioned a few things about what is the, the overall impact. And we, as mission, we always try to respond to, to real needs in the host country and to support um, existing reforms and, and public policy. And definitely youth participation, youth involvement in public life is among those. Um, I'm under impression that many youth organizations really found a way to, to continue working, to be innovative, to come up with out-of-the-box solutions, especially in terms of using di digital channels of communication and digital tools. And many of them, I think, maybe even learned overnight um, as much as some of us also had to do that um, about the things and tools that we really did not use before. And they managed to, um, to do still their outreach toward their uh, communities and to support people, especially in the, in the peak time of, of, of COVID. What has continued, for instance, for us, let me just mention one example. Um, we started, for instance, in 2015, a project that we uh, colloquially call Humans of Albania and Serbia. And this was a multi-sectorial partnership where we gathered basically young representatives from civil society organizations from these two countries around joint skills development, joint initiatives creation, and building basically on their advantage as digital natives which then placed them in a position of active agents whose voice hopefully was heard and whose ideas were supported. And I, on this occasion, I would like to recommend you to see maybe one of the outputs of this project. It's a short documentary, it's called Kismet. It's a Turkish word for destiny. And this one focuses particularly on the role of young women in this regard. So this started some years ago. Nevertheless, let's say that pandemic in a way affected a lot still even regional or bilateral cooperation was something that young people managed to, to still maintain in a way, even digitally. So at the end of last year, we helped in formalization of commitment of National Youth Council of Serbia and National Youth Congress of Albania, who signed memorandum of understanding towards advancing youth cooperation on this bilateral level. And this was also endorsed by line ministries and by Regional Youth Cooperation Office, which is important intergovernmental mechanism in this region, enabling more people-to-people -people contact. What is also interesting to, to mention is that this year Tirana is the European Youth Capital, which is a very competitive title to obtain, and is the first capital city to, to ever get it. Um, and second in our region, Novi Sad had it in 2019. 
um, I believe we need to appreciate efforts that people behind organization of uh, Tirana European Youth Capital had to put um, during COVID time in order to, to make preparations and to make things happen this year, which I guess is still um, a challenge one way or another. But what I wanted to mention here is, as a small detail, um, they opened the call for youth initiatives in the light of this title. And imagine they received 982 proposals. And I think this speaks tons of youth readiness to engage when given a chance and resources. And I really look forward to, to witness some of their projects. It might also be that um, some slow walk during pandemic um, also gave birth to, to more enthusiasm and motivation, but this is really impressive, this number of ideas that, that they received uh, from young people in, in Albania. Nevertheless, for, for this kind of thing to be possible in a sustainable manner, I think that multi-sectoral partnerships must be fostered and that young people need to be asked for their needs. This is, for instance, one good example. But also we need to systemically enable space and conditions for young people to contribute as active citizens. And I think this is something that um, all different stakeholders, including also those who are not necessarily super focused only on youths, could be contributing to. And we see this also, this tendency in, in private sector, in business sector, right? Where you have in some of the in some of the big companies introduction of um, uh, mechanisms such as youth shadow boards or similar, whereas they really want to tap into this demographic group and understand their attitudes, their habits, um, needs, etc. And I think this is the way to go also for state actors, also for multilateral organizations. Um, and in the long run, of course, if through youth mainstreaming, we enable more participation in all of these aspects of, of uh, public policy and of, you know, just everyday life of people from local to national and international level. Um, of course, that benefits entire societies and not only young people themselves, but naturally also it's an investment in, in future. Absolutely. We're now slowly coming to an end of our podcast. Um, there is a bonus question for you. Is there any piece of art um, that you associate with our today's topic? It might be a painting, it might be a book, it might be a movie. Is there anything that you would recommend to our listeners? Yes, actually, this is my favorite question. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell books. Um, he made a name for himself already in New Yorker as a journalist. Nevertheless, his, I think it's his first book. It's called The Tipping Point how little things can make a big difference um, is something that I find entirely interesting and inspirational. It's been said the tipping point is that magic moment when an idea, trend, or social behavior crosses a threshold, tips and spreads like wildfire. So the interesting angle here for me is how change and progress happens, or actually does it happen or we do something about it? when and how it's not always about quantities. I don't see it necessarily as a prescription, but a way to reflect, as the title suggests, how little things can make a big difference. So in relation to youth participation in societies, there might be two angles to it. One is certainly that participation argument can be built 
not only on electoral body size potential. And another, which is, I guess, also food for thought for any individual is, is change triggered by critical dissatisfaction or we can achieve progress also from the position of relative privilege. So that's the first one. And um, when it comes to the piece of art that I, that I recall and I really deeply love, this is a painting um, by uh, painter Ilya Repin. It's called What a Freedom, and it was done at the beginning of um, 20th century. So in the context, you know, towards 1905 Russian Revolution, which marked transformation from the Tsarist autocracy, some interpret it as the youth who never lose sight of their audacious expectations and joyful hopes, not even when swamped by adversity. Because in this painting, what we see is a young woman and a man being joyful, careless, and they jointly stepping through the troubled weather and crashing waves. So even without looking into concrete context of the painting, I believe that such message may resonate with certainty of enthusiastic change that youth anywhere can bring. And on a more personal level, as if it's saying that whatever storms one may face in life, one prevails as their attitude towards life is one of joy, love, of lightness. It can also be about the strength of togetherness in hard times and of how inner emotional life has supremacy or external stimulus. And finally, for me, it's also about the love for life with a touch of survival instinct. And that's a really beautiful concluding uh, reflection to our podcast, which connects uh, surviving difficult times such as pandemic at the same time, connecting to youth very well. Thank you very much for that. Thank you also for sharing your expertise, your reflection and thoughts with us today. Yeah, thank you, Malvina, as well. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website, www.idm.at. For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e.hontuberry at idm.at. The email is in the description below. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erste Group. With the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Natalik, Daniel Martinek and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.